Today's episode of the Film Stage Show Classic is brought to you by MUBI, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. back everyone to another classic review from the film stage show the movie review podcast for the filmstage.com as always i'm your host brian j rowan and with me today another head to head episode with michael snydell hello michael how are you i'm i'm good that's good. i i i am good and i know that you're very good because we are talking about something that you only talk about <laughs> we've probably only mentioned it you know half a hundred a times, times. <laughs> or, or half a million yeah yeah i slip it into every episode i can <laughs> um so we weren't able to get out and see any new movies this week uh bill was also on vacation so he was going to be away so at some point we decided screw it we have a backlog of classic <laughs> reviews we have to get through and what better movie to talk about than one by my personal favorite filmmaker terrence malick that's right. Brian, definitely at no point were we just like, what classic movie should we do? And Brian definitely wasn't like, what if we did a Malick movie? And what I'm if, like, all right, cool. What if we did a movie from 2005 <laughs> and just said it was classic? Because, be, we, you know, it's before the podcast started. Sure. <laughs> that counts. To be fair, too, I, I think the New World 2, which we haven't mentioned, is the 2005 film, The New World, is, is a Malick film that I think... Uh, is talked about a little less than some of his others. You know, you hear a lot about uh, Days of Heaven and then his recent films like uh, Night of Cups and, uh, and uh, Song to Song and Tree of Life. But New World is, uh, it, it exists at a really fascinating, uh, you, you described it as a pivot point, And I think yeah. that's a, a great way to talk about this. Well, uh, but It's not yeah. only that. I mean, you know, not to get into it before we do all the other no, stuff. Sure, but sure. Uh, this movie was released people were excited for it it was his first since the thin red line and it uh it didn't perform as well as the thin red line uh who could have guessed and then not only that but it kind of disappeared until people were doing like their first you know top 10 of the century so far lists in like 2009 2010 and it just started popping up everywhere like people started (laughs) saying like hey remember the new world that was actually a masterpiece and and so yeah it made a lot of sense it is a movie that came went and then slowly evolved into a classic that was almost universally recognized but then yeah just his stunning output in this the second decade of the new century has kind of like made people Malik became prolific which is still crazy (laughs) (laughs) still have trouble understanding that but um yeah so we're going to talk about the new world since this is a classic review there's going to be no non-spoiler spoiler section it's just going to all be on the table right up front but you know, this is also a movie based on history, so you should be able to get it. If you've seen the Disney animated films Pocahontas and Pocahontas Journey to the New World, <laughs> then you then you got it. You know what's going on. So before we get into that, the usual stuff, find us on Twitter. 
That is at Film Stage Show. Find us on Facebook. Search for The Film Stage Show. And, of course, email us, podcastfilmstage.com, or go to uh, iTunes and give us a comment and rating on there. In addition, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash filmstage, or slash the filmstage show, patreon.com slash the filmstage show. Sign up to give as little as $1 an episode, and you get access to our super cool Slack channel where we have great movie discussions, spoiler discussions, beyond what we talk about on this podcast. You'll also be entered to win cool raffles that we do, which are awesome. You can get cool stuff. And you just get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping us to produce more great episodes like this. In addition, we are brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema, where every day their curators introduce a brand new film for you to enjoy, and you have 30 days to watch. So it's a constantly rotating selection of 30 great films, so you're never stuck wandering through Netflix, wondering what you should check out, only to find yourself rewatching Mad Men again. Which is definitely not something that I'm doing right now. <laughs> As we said last week, the Francois Ozon Loving Provocation series is still in full swing. So there are films such as 1999's Criminal Lovers, and it's, this is described as one of Ozon's most extreme tales. The Lovers on the Run genre mixes with fairy tales made in the era of Larry Clark's Kids and Bully, yet starring Darden actor Jeremy Renier, and Ooh. it is by turns harsh and sexy, which is exactly <laughs> what you'd expect from Francois Ozon. So check that out. In addition, Swedish director Johannes Neholm, his film The Giant is on there, so make sure to check that out as well. And again, every day new films are added, every day new films disappear, so go constantly check out what's on Mubi and if you would like a free 30-day trial go to mubi.com slash film stage but that's it we're done we can finally talk about the new world when i brought up talking about this you're like well i've only seen it once i'll have to watch it again and (laughs) we were only able to see the theatrical version this film has three different versions that you can watch oh it's three yeah there is the theatrical version the original theatrical cut, which is not the one that screened for most of America. And then there is the extended cut, which was released on DVD. All three are available on Criterion Blu-ray. I own a DVD of the theatrical cut, a DVD of the extended cut, and then the Criterion Blu-ray. So I technically own five different versions of this film. That's, that's slightly overkill. I know. It's a little nuts. I need to get rid of a few of them. However, uh, that was my thing. I, you know, we said, like, are we going to have time to watch it? And I was like, you know what? Doesn't even matter for me. I could say this thing from front to back, tell you everything about it. So I'm curious. You rewatched this today. What are your, like, basic general, like, what do you feel about it? What do you think? You, you, I should say, you texted me and said, oh, God, this is Lubezki. <laughs> well, our, our, our Slack knows that uh, I like to... Uh, I troll on Lubeski a lot because I just I just generally don't like his uh, latter day output that much. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm on the record as as being as respecting, but being pretty mixed about um, uh, Malik's modern day films, which are just you know are absolutely uh, and you know can't really be. They they can't be uh, sorry. 
they need to be uh, considered in context with Lubeski. The, the way right. that Lubeski and Malik made those films together, it, it is a collaboration in the sense of a word that we don't get that often these days. Um, and his other films for uh, in, in Aritu, as well as Koran, uh, are, are other things that... Um, I don't know. His style... It just feels a little bit. I'm going to get further into this, but I'll start with it. It it feels. Then this is an unfair characterization, but try hard to me at times. <laughs> the ways that it is, uh, you know, so at once rigorous and also free flowing, and the ways that it wants to be experiential, it just it oftentimes feels distracting and yeah, I don't know. just not that satisfying to me. So I, I say that all that prelude to point out, as I told, as Brian said, that I did uh, message him uh, being worried that this was a Lubeski film. And this is, this is actually Lubeski's first collaboration with uh, Malik. Cause I guess thin red line would have been right before that. It, and that's uh that's John, John Toll. Toll. Yes. Yeah. Um and so yeah, I mean I I think but I, I think that this experience um clarified a number of things for me that maybe don't you know, it don't like solidify Malik as my guy, <laughs> but they at the very least made me understand some of the inner conflicts I have with his work. I uh, did some research for this and because um, I, I followed the creation of both this film and Tree of Life very closely in high school. And these were two films that he'd kind of been working on since like the 70s. They're things that he had in his head that he needed to get out. And that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. And following um, the Thin Red Line, he kind of had the cachet to get this movie made because this is—I did—I didn't look up the specifics, but this is you know not a cheap movie. They got a bunch of people. They're on location. They got a lot of extras. They got a lot of you know practical effects, and they built an entire town. Um, ben Mendelsohn and Noah Taylor. Like, wow. Yeah. Christopher Plummer, <laughs> he's in there. And then um, that one guy who was important in in The Thin Red Line, whose name I can't remember. Chaplin? Yeah, Ben Chaplin. Chaplin. Ben Chaplin, yeah. that was the one. So so this movie is weird because it, it is, along with Tree of Life, one of the two films that he seemed to be trying to work his way toward. Like, he really did everything that he could to to get these movies made. And then that seemed to lead to the the release of the block that gave us his like triptych of modern romance films, if they could be called romance. Mm. Films that wrestle with romance and love in a modern fashion and a modern place. But this movie it it, it marks a lot of uh, a lot of changes for him. I mean the third line he came back and he had a lot of stars, and it was big, and it was expensive. This movie is his first time working with Emmanuel Lubezki, who he will work on with every movie, uh, up until his next one. Like, his... Not not The Tree of Life, obviously. The one that's coming out. Um, Rad- Radigund? Radigund? 
Yes. Yes. The World War Two one. Yes. And but that's that's five movies with Lubezki, who is sure possibly one of the more polarizing cinematographers in the world. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> he is he is a dangerous weapon to wield as a director because sure. if you don't know what you're doing and you don't have a style of your own, his will take you over. I'm looking at you in Ori <laughs> 2. Like, you know, Children of Men, he shot that. Fucking fantastic movie. Uh, the sure. Tree of Life, this movie. I think that Malik <laughs> let him off the leash a little bit in his three most recent films, um, To the Wonder, Knight of Cups, and Song to Song. But I think that it is hard for anyone to exert more control over a Terrence Malick film than Malick himself. So that even if Lubezki is like, all right, I'm really going to spin the camera around this time. Malik is still like, well, that's great, but I'm throwing out that entire A-plot that we shot, so now everything else is just going to be what, what Terry wants. And I think that this movie... I don't know. It's, it's such a weird kind of artifact to look at because people were not prepared for it. Um, it, it shows... It shows a kind of evolution of his thinking about the way cinema can work. Because The Thin Red Line, Badlands, Days of Heaven, these movies, as much as they were very much still Malick movies, kind of maintained a basic narrative thrust. And this movie Mm -hmm. is so much more lyrical and so much more tree-gazy, I guess is the way to put it in a Malick (laughs) film, that... I feel like you could feel him turning towards what he would do, I think, to perfection in the Tree of Life, and then what he could kind of, like, indulge in really hard in the next three films. I mean, you walk into this movie, and I just remember, like, going to see this with some friends, and it's like, oh, it's like a historical epic. It's like Pocahontas. It's going to be like, you know, the the Disney movie, but, like, as though it were directed by the people who made Dances with Wolves. And they were just not prepared for the voiceover and the pictures of trees and just how weird it can get. And so, like it doesn't like I, I like that's a really interesting point in the sense that like it, it doesn't have any of the traditional or, or it, it's strange because it has <laughs> arguably the scope and the like sense of production of an epic, but it doesn't have any of the laboriousness like there's there's no like you know scenes intense where they're like describing what they're going to do next and even even when there are like ostensibly conversations about like uh you know these larger ideas of colonialism and what they should do with natives and stuff there it's so peripheral <laughs> <laughs> Do you, I mean, do you really think? Do you really think it's peripheral, though? Like, well, it's I, or I should say, it's peripheral in the sense that it's only in service to a more elemental feeling. Like, I think romance is is a great way to talk about this movie, and one that uh, I think is easy to forget. Because we're used to romances, you know, going back and forth in perspective and watching one person and watching this romance grow. And Malik's romances don't work like that. Like, people are, you know, attracted to each other through, like, a gravitational pull. 
And I, I think that that as well is what makes this, um, I mean, you already described how this does feel, you know, different from Badlands and, and Days of Heaven, which are again are something where that are about, you know, that are, uh, two films that are inherently about fate. And, but I feel like this film really solidifies his obsession with like, uh, and I suppose Thin Red Line as well, but but this one even more, especially with uh, Lubeski behind as uh, the DP, uh, like solidifies its obsession, Malik's obsession with loops and cycles and the way that you know doing slight variations on loops uh, can create all of these <laughs> different feelings. Uh, it's it's really strange. This one, this one, perhaps even more than something like Thin Red Line or Days of Heaven. I notice is almost, you know, for the first third, or and you know, even I I, I don't want to say that it's necessarily three parts, but I will say that this film, for a lot of its runtime, it's it's ferocious. Like the, there's a sense of of. Uh, of misery here that you just want catharsis from so badly. And then when that release comes in the second half in that just truly wonderful coda with, uh, sorry, wonderful is such a, a bad word in, in this truly, uh, reflective, um, gentle, a kind coda with with Christian Bale, like uh, that. The way that this film uh, just washes with emotion in in such like violent ways is something that I didn't remember and and didn't expect, and like again puts in context for me some of those later films in a way I didn't think about. Yeah, I, I think that um, one of the things that, that sticks with me so much about this film is the way in which Malick kind of lets things go more. Um, it's, 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 it's weird to say. Like, Badlands and Days of Heaven feel very constructed. Everything feels... I don't want to say false, but it, it, it they definitely feel as though this is a story being told to you. Sure. And the Thin Red Line, you know, as much as it might be my favorite movie of all time, has a similar kind of feel to it. But I think that, whatever you could say about Lubezki, I think that the motion of his camera in this film allows it to feel less constructed, and it allows everything to feel much more real. And... I think that in that way, the movie becomes more accessible while at the same time being a little more challenging, just because you're not, you're not seeing what should be like these massive moments that like a sweeping historical romance should have. Like You really do feel like you're kind of checking in on these people every now and then, and the, the reality that they create is so tactile and so weird and so dirty, and you really do have to like hang on through a lot of this film, especially when you're, when you're in Jamestown and you're not out among, um, as they're called in this movie, the naturals. Like, but I'll say, 
I don't know. I, it's it's hard to pin down because the movie itself is so many things. It's it's an examination of a culture clash. It's like a pivotal point in in world history for two different groups of people, and really the whole world. If you want to get into like the impact that America's had on human civilization, <laughs> but at the same time, it's also just the story of like like love and heartbreak and and what it means to be in love. And it's all of these things while never really wanting to construct a narrative that plays into that. It, it really tries so hard to feel as real as possible. But like with anyone's life, you know, just dipping in now and then, is, it's, it's a difficult way to put that across. And so I think a lot of it falls to the actors and the music and, and the little asides that we get. And I feel like that's why Lubezki is important to this movie. (laughs) You know, I I think he, he absolutely is. I I mean, even, you know, this thing has, this thing has four editors and you can sometimes feel that. And I mean, I mean that in the nicest way. These days, you know, you look at Marvel films and it's fucking 12 editors. Um, You you know, I had to get in my, my head on a Marvel film this episode. Um, (laughs) Everyone's going to do it. But like even... You know, I'm I'm thinking about an, an early scene where you know I, I I like how he almost for see it, it's hard to come up with consistent things because he's constantly switching up the techniques. But I can say that the ways in which he introduces a character and then does a you know quick flash cut to uh, a piece of nature and cuts back to motion L- like the ways that it's almost stop motion L- like the ways that eventually feels um a- and the ways that it constructs something uh so primitive like makes it almost feel like the universality of like of myth because as much as you're saying like it's about it is about like love and heartbreak and that relationship becomes weirdly emotional, especially by the end in a way I wasn't expecting. But like, I also think this is almost the perfect, uh, way to transpose, uh, Malik's idea or Malik's interests in like having a movie that literally requires language to be ground down into like monosyllables (laughs) for, for like, Almost an hour. And I I think that in doing that and in creating such like vibrantly different moods for like every locale in the place and and the way that humans look at the world um, is what makes this so interesting. And I think, you know, I – Going to a critique that Malik sometimes gets, and one I sometimes feel um, in some of his films, is his is his uh, fetishization of exoticism and the ways that he lifts up, especially tribes, to seem like this uh, this great purity. And I think that Thin Red Line potentially suffers from potentially suffers from this in my eyes because I don't think that we're given uh, enough complexity of perspective in that film that I do absolutely think that complexity is here. 
I, I think the ways that this film plays with perspective and the ways that when the narration changes, it almost signals a shift in the narrative uh, is, is really, really kind of incredible and, and strange. And I still don't know <laughs> whether it should work as well as it does. <laughs> as strange as that is. I think that's one of the things that it's weird that you bring up perspective. I think that one of the things that that serves this movie best is that the characters like have no perspective on their own actions. Everything that is like everything that is happening is happening to them, and they're not really thinking about sure. it in a wider context. Um, <laughs> and that is a problem that a lot of movies like this have. Um, there's <laughs> there's a Thirty Rock joke. Um, where Tracy uh, Jordan in the show is talking about how he is like tired of playing like the typical like black guy in a historical movie, and he's like, you know, I don't know much. It flashes to him doing like a movie, and he's like, I don't know the much Thomas about Jefferson, nothing, but I do know that like you know people are a lot like this here apple tree, John F. Kennedy, and it's like you. There's that in everything, and it's it's sure. like it's like the. Um, the Disney version of Pocahontas, which is like, you know, it's its own problems. It's <laughs> my daughter likes it. She likes the songs. She likes the raccoon. Uh, but I watch it and I'm just like, you know, what's so fucking weird about this is that like this movie is trying to make a point of like, we're all the same. And like, you know, they reacted poorly to us and like, we reacted poorly to them and like all this other stuff. But like at the same time, there is a mystical native American man who can make rabbits and boats appear in smoke and who, like, throws something in a fire, and then, like, smoke wolves go around everyone. It's like, this is what the white man is. And it's like, okay, hold on, wait a second. You're trying to say that, like, deep down we're all just people, but this man clearly has magic powers. Also, there's a talking tree. And in this in this movie, one of the things that I think that I think it took people a second to react to is how egalitarian it is like how yeah. passive it is just in its view of everyone like the settlers are fucking idiots not because mm. you know that's like their their burden but just because like people are greedy like their society is one based on greed and this whole thing is an economic endeavor and so they're panning for gold because they want to get rich quick like the spanish may have done sure but this ain't that place and and meanwhile when you go to the the natives village like they're not solemn like purely wise people who are like you know speaking in deep voices and saying things like you know the rain makes the corn grow and that is how we know that we are good it's like there's a point in this movie that i always love where (laughs) where one of the natives is he's got like a stick and he he mm-hmm. pantomimes that John should do something with it, and then when he goes to hold it out to him, John reaches for it, and the guy snatches pulls it, it back, away, and he laughs, <laughs> yeah. and then he like hands it to him like really proudly, and it's yeah. just like it's such a human moment, and it's not humanizing them by making them seem better than anyone else, or 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 wiser, or mystical, or innocent. It's a human moment by making them do a human thing, and it's. It's so strange that, like, that should feel, even today, like, revolutionary. Like, 
in, sure. in <laughs> let's talk about another movie shot by Emmanuel Lebesky in The Revenant. <laughs> it's this like patrol of of Native Americans who are like, we're looking for our lost princess, and then they find her, and then they arrive to like exact the revenge that like glass cannot and they're just like they're these weird ice phantoms who show up every now and then to be like our land has been stolen <laughs> and in this movie that's a dumb movie <laughs> it's it's a real dumb movie and in this movie you know john smith is like hey they don't have a concept of ownership but like not in, not in sure. like a really advanced like thoughtful way it's just like they're they're basically nature has bred them to be communists like they live in a they live in a tight-knit society against nature and they've found a way to balance with it and part of that is not holding on to anything too tightly but then he equally says but also like you know they wouldn't suffer their lands to be taken and they were willing to goddamn fight for them because they are people who understand the necessity of having a place to call home and it's just i just it's so weird because it that that allows you at once a better perspective on the situation beyond you know the histrionics of like you know we came here and we slaughtered them and we took all their land it's like well sure. you know, at first maybe we didn't like that wasn't the plan but it happened that way but like there was no evil dude standing up front saying let's take him out when a guy sure. kills one of them he is like punished in front of the others because you know as an economic exercise you need to be able to trade for food if you can't make your own and I, it's just so weird because that that allows the romance between Pocahontas, who's never really named in the movie, and John Smith, or, uh, yeah, Captain John Smith, to to bloom in a way that doesn't feel like exoticism. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like, oh, this man has the soul of like the natural person who who wants to to live off the land. It's like no, they're just like meeting as people. And in fact, a lot of a lot of his a lot of his interior monologue is is kind of like decidedly not objectivist or like capitalist, but like I guess the kind of like ideal communistic living that the natives have found. Because he's like, you know, the 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 good, honest, hardworking people shouldn't made, be made to like supplicate the the weak. Sure. And they don't in this society he's found because if you're weak you're not helping and if you're not helping what are you doing and it's it's but it's not like through force in the native culture but it has to be in the english culture because they they've been bred to feel a little bit of comfort and laziness and they think the gold will make them rich immediately so yeah it that's a long-winded way of saying that like no no this this movie through its attempts at verisimilitude and the historical narrative deepens the romance in a way that like any other movie couldn't that didn't invest that time in it. I, I think, yeah, I, I think that egalitarianism too is, is so, so interesting. Cause I, I think that was admittedly my expectation on rewatching this, that, you know, um, especially early on, it seems like it's making a, uh, you know, I, this is a little bit blunter than how slippery this movie is, but it's making some larger message about how, you know, the way that Pocahontas lives uh, is much more freeing. It, it's uh, it's much happier. It's much more satisfying. And it does seem like, in a way, it is making some type of, uh, you know, anti-colonialism message. But again, as you're saying, that's not really the case <laughs> because 
it's it's almost like its political view is like human curiosity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like like and that's that's a really a really strange thing to grapple with because like, I'm not saying that I necessarily want it to be anti-colonialism, but it is interesting in the ways that it does gesture towards those larger uh, statements. Um, and then doesn't necessarily pull back or anything, but just simply expands the larger context. And I think that works similarly, similarly exactly in uh, how organically the things that happen. There's a, there's um, speaking of, one moment that's really organic that I really like, uh, that's almost entirely uncommented on is, uh, there's a scene right after tensions erupt between the natives and the people in the camp and they fight and then they have a truce. And of course some idiot accidentally makes his gun go off, but it's the scene after that where they're going to trade <laughs> with them. <laughs> like it, it, it's just, that's the next scene. Yeah. And I think there's something really, again, true and uh, honest in that in a really interesting way. And and just the to return it to that romance and also the egalitarianism that's present in that is the way that, you know, uh, Colin Farrell almost wants to, like, preserve her way of life like he's so worried that he's going to soil pocahontas in some way yeah and, and christian bale he can get uh, the the people that he's brought with him to live in that way like in the way of them the 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 natives yes but then christian bale on the other hand like does want to take her as a wife but also wants to like he literally uses the word possess and i think that's a word that comes up you know, two or three times from what I can remember. So I think it's pretty clear why they use that use that word. But that's another another part of the romance that, again, could be, you know, especially in this current climate, could be something that is seen as some like subversion in this romance or, or some evidence of some uh, darkness. And that's not what this film is and and the fact that it doesn't exert its power in either direction is uh <laughs> was was really strange for me it was it was a really foreign concept <laughs> and i i think you bring up an interesting thing that I, I actually wanted to talk about i don't know i don't i don't even know what a film telling this story would look like today i don't know who would want to make it and I can't even imagine what kind of lens they would put over it. Like Davies, maybe I could see Terrence Davies. I don't know. Like that's, I don't know. Cause I just think about, <laughs> and this isn't the fault of the movie makers per se, but like every single film nowadays is a political statement. Sure. And so they're like, you know, is, is the new transformers like a stunning rebuke of uh, Trump's trade policies? And it'll be because, like, Mark Wahlberg is, like, unable to buy steel from China or something. Like, and so you place that especially on a historical narrative like this. And I just, I just wonder, like, what it would, what the reaction to this movie would be like now. Like, is it, like, would people see it as a, like, celebration of, like, the natural way that was lost when the white man came here? Would people see it as an an, uh, apologia? for, you know, 
what we eventually did by saying like, oh, but look, like they respected them at first, but then sure. like, of course we destroyed them. And I think that like it's good that this cut made when it did by the people who made it because there really does seem to be a kind of like mutual understanding of the fact that like these people could have no idea of the consequences of everything that they were doing. Sure. And we don't really live in a climate anymore where you can make that kind of movie. Because I feel like as as brave as that is, it would be seen as cowardly now. But I, I think the difference I, like I, I I very much agree with you to an extent, but I think the problem is we have seen examples where that both sides quality can be really cowardly. Like I think of something like Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, a film that really, really deeply frustrated me because it, it pulled its punches. I, but the, I, uh, mm, I, I understand what you're saying. I hated that movie, and <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think that this movie operates in that same way, though. No, 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 and no. Okay. I'm, I'm saying it does not. <laughs> okay, Sorry, I, I'm trying to say that is that I think that is that would technically be a problem. I think if this film was released today, but I'm saying I want to give. Uh, Malik credit for how he handles this stuff because it, it is this. Well, it, it's not clinical. I, don't, I was going to say clinical, but it's not clinical. It's humanist. It's it's humanist like in a way that so few people are willing to be humanist because it feels dopey and 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 uh, it's just out of vogue and old fashioned, um, and and that. That is, I think, what does differ it. And, and I think maybe part of the problem with how we're viewing, you know, this latest uh, trilogy. Yeah, trilogy of romances. No, I guess it'd be quadrilogy because it would be uh, Tree of Life. life quadrilogy, yes. Yeah, Tree of Life, to, to the Wonder, Knight of Cups. And, you know, I, I think what is interesting about those films and it's <laughs> – I couldn't help but think about it a little bit while watching this is the way that some have talked about an introduction of almost like kink <laughs> in something like song to song and night of cups. Um, one, because there's actual nudity and, and a possibility that something more sexual than holding hands <laughs> tightly is yeah, happening. Like the sexiest thing that happens in that movie is that, that game they play with their feet. <laughs> really yeah. soft looking undergrowth yeah <laughs> yeah like and you know it's it's interesting thinking about the reception to that film and just also realizing yes he's kind of dealing with the same thing that he was dealing here and he just brought it to a new place and brought it into a more grounded scenario and it's I'm probably going to have to rewatch these damn movies now, but (laughs) I'm just, I'm realizing that it it is, I don't want to say it's, it's only politics that makes some of those, uh, contemporary Malick films difficult because it would also be completely inaccurate to call the new world apolitical (laughs) because in, in showing something as it is, that is obviously its own, own form of politics as much as it's, something that is so often presented as cowardice. Right. And so, one of the things that this movie does really well is that it, it allows people to have human emotions regarding a situation that, that to them are not political. They're just a reaction like her. 
Pocahontas is, uh, by that point, she was calling herself Rebecca. Her sadness yeah. in in England is like palpable. Like there's a there's sure. a kind of inquisitiveness at first, and then she wants to go home, like because she's homesick. Because who wouldn't be? <laughs> it's a weird, weird new world that she stepped into, and you know, John Rolfe, Christian Bale's character, like obviously has affection for her as a woman, sure. but he's also like, you know, oh, she also really understands the cultivation of tobacco, <laughs> which is how I'm going to make my fortune, my my brown gold. Um, and you know, John Smith is like this this guy who as Christopher Plummer's character says, like, is brought to America in chains because of his mutinous talk. And he finds, you know, in her, like, the spiritual being that he wants to be, but also he's still got that wayward spirit. So he, like, dips out to go look for a Northwest Passage. (laughs) And, like, it's just interesting because, like, again, like, a lesser film would have them try to explicate this through a modern lens and like turn it into an analogy or or something but in this film they're just they just let them be people who have like impulses and thoughts and desires and i again it just feels it feels weirdly revolutionary and i think that i i, I imagine that it probably infuriated some people because they're like, you could say so much here, but you're just following these people pretending to be deer prancing through a forest. And it's like, but don't you understand that everything that you're seeing doesn't exist anymore? Like, this is what was lost, and this is how these people perceived it as it was happening. And, like, their ignorance of history and fate is, like, the real kind of tragedy that's being explored. Which, you know, almost makes me think that Maybe we'd have better conversations if we, excuse me, better conversations about, you know, uh, this film on with Malik if we referred to them first as romances. Because then we might be able to, you know, I mean, this is getting into some sexist understandings, you know, of how we talk about romances these days, unfortunately. But, like, I think that there is a baggage in that uh, becomes unavoidable when you start talking about it as like a historical epic or something. And and I think that Malik's like repeated interest again in like immovable forces um, is it becomes like a, a, a again, this is something to uh to try to read into as some larger meaning when he's just trying to show, you know, how powerful love can be is, you know, as goofy as that, as that sounds. <laughs> it is a goofy thing to say, <laughs> but no, it's true. I mean, it, like I said, it's, it's weird, you know, people kind of made fun of it, but like, yeah, it's kind of weird to know that like Terrence Malick, you know, might love someone and and also want to have sex with them. Like it's it's not something that you really <laughs> feel in his other movies. Even though Days of Heaven was all about that, and you know, it's effective, but it's effective in like a fairy tale way, where you're just like, I just have to assume that these people do feel this way, and I'll let the images and the lyricism take over. But that movie also was told through the eyes of a child. Sure. Who didn't quite understand what was going on. Just as Badlands, you know, one and a half of its quote-unquote romantic duo was also a child and yeah 
and so these films where he's kind of starting to interrogate like the irrationality of love and the ways that it can make people act. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I feel like the thesis of this whole podcast is going to be like the new world is a pivot point for Terrence Malick. <laughs> and not just in a stylistic sense with Emmanuel Lubezki there, but in a sense of like, this is the one where he really lets like his belief in like the in the power of love like come to the forefront and, like, all right we need huey lewis for the yeah, intro never we'll mind to, <laughs> we'll have to chew it up um but yeah he lets it come to the forefront and he kind of does say like don't you understand that like at a certain point the culture clash didn't matter it was all about the way these people felt about each other and yeah yeah like you know John, the, the reason that the settlers don't all die out is because Pocahontas loves John Smith. The reason that, you know, she sticks around is because she loves John Smith. And then the reason that the settlers are able to stay and that, like, a colony in the New World is effective is because he leaves and then, you know, John Rolfe falls in love with her. And it's this weird almost ballad to, like, how much a connection between two people can like alter the fundamental course of human history without again, all the big histrionics and platitudes that would make that more obvious in like an Oliver Stone. Sure. (laughs) I can't, I can't help but also think about the ways, the limits of how we talk about narrative are, uh, are really frustrating. The the fact that like, this is going to sound, obvious but uh, nonetheless uh, uh you know how rarely we think of you know films in relation to poetry or something and you know it, tone poem is something that's become you know kind of a, a damning phrase it's in a, my yeah, opinion it's like the type of thing you say when like the movie makes no sense like, <laughs> it's really more of a tone poem i don't think anyone knows what a tone poem is sure i would love to see a piece of poetry that gets dis- i've never heard a written piece of poetry described <laughs> as a tone poem you know, like that's yeah. my issue. Like someone could call a movie a haiku or a sonnet, and I'd be like, okay, I vaguely understand what he's talking about. <laughs> but like, you say tone poem. I've only ever heard it related to films that like look really good, but like you can't understand what the fuck is going on. Sure. <laughs> but that's but that brings me to you know not I'm not that I'm calling this a tone poem at all, but rather to the fact that like. Again, it, we're almost not equipped in a way to t- talk about films that try to, uh, you know, make a hybrid of standard narratives and more avant-garde techniques. And I, I feel like, especially these new Malik films, have kind of shown that over and over in the way that people are focusing on individual gestures as examples of how you know he's lost his marbles or or something like there's just something very and again i i can't say that i i love all these films but i I can't help but watching this and coming into it with some preconceived notions about emmanuel lebeski and what i expected from a historical epic have nonetheless kind of uh Changed my thoughts about uh, about 
I don't know about the ways that he seems to be interested in subtraction. Um, and that being okay, I guess. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I, I Again, this is obviously a very unformed thought here, but I just, uh, yeah, I just, I, I think that the word, I think that this goes back to the thesis you already said, Brian, in that this is a pivot point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm just going to title this The New World as a Pivot Point. Um, it's also a pivot point in the careers of a few people. Um, I would actually, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to click on his name on IMDb. I'd love to know where this comes in, like, the Colin Farrell like, thing. His whole, his whole goddamn thing. Because he, yeah, he goes from Tigerland, which was kind of his breakout, to American Outlaws, to Hearts War, you know, to Minority wow. Report, to Phone Booth, Great and Minority Report, good, Great and Phone Booth, The Recruit, Daredevil. <laughs> then he's in Veronica Guerin. Then he's in SWAT. Then he's in Intermission, right? And so he's kind of like bouncing between like respectable stuff and like he's trying to find his own sense of stardom at a time when like those like movie stars really didn't exist any, anymore then he's in um alexander right oh man which was alexander is something <laughs> but then with the new world he sort of starts to to rebound for a little bit anyway he's in miami vice cassandra's dream in bruges and then he's oh, in right The Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus. He takes uh, the role in that to <sighs> fill out Heath Ledger's thing. Yeah. He's in Ondine, which is a cute little movie. Uh, Crazy Heart, London Boulevard. And then he, like, hits Horrible Bosses, Fright Night, Total Recall, Seven Psychopaths, Dead Man Down, which I will stand up for. And then he... I don't know, it's weird. I stand up for Fright Night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fright Night is freaking great. And then he's um, in Saving Mr. Banks' Winter's Tale, The Lobster. Like, at, at a certain point, he realizes, like, you know what I'm not going to do anymore? <laughs> I'm really, like, I'm not going to do the the SWATs, recruits, and daredevils of the world anymore. I mean, he's doing Dumbo next year, so... I mean, the man's got to make money. I can't imagine a Yorgos Lanthimos <laughs> film pays that much. <laughs> he's also in Widows. He, he sure is. <laughs> Look, I happen to love Steve McQueen. Um, but yeah, The Killing of the Sacred Deer, Beguiled. Like, he, he rebounds, you know, after 2005, I think he figures out, like, this is what I gotta, this is what I gotta do. I can't, I can't keep, I can't keep allowing myself to be, like, Jim Street in SWAT. Oh my god, his name is Jim his Street. Name is Jim Street. <laughs> In the Welcome recruit, to the B side. <laughs> he is Stu Shepard in phone booth, and the in the recruit he is James Douglas Clayton. Oh boy! Yeah, but so I no, didn't realize I, he was Jesse James in American Outlaws. <laughs> I saw American Outlaws in the theater with like it was like a group date, I guess in middle or high school, and I remember nothing about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I I saw him in the War Zone which is a great movie that I have seen like once and probably can't watch again. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean like, it's just weird how, 
how like uh, yeah if we really wanted to follow this through and just talk about it as a pivot point for everyone this could do it but i mean it's 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 such a weird it's it's just such a weird movie even in like the 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 sweep of terrence malick films and i think one of the things that i love most is that i guess um this is before people really understood what a terrence malick film did like people I, I, th- I feel like they didn't learn their they didn't learn their lessons from the Thin Red Line because apparently Christopher Plummer and Wes Studi were both like, "What the shit, bro? Like I did a bunch of stuff, and now I'm not in it really anymore." And I, I feel like after that point, like it became a joke where it's like, "I might be in the next Terrence Malick film," and it's like, "Oh, are you still going out for it? Nope, shot a shit ton of stuff, just still not sure." <laughs> It's like a fucking, oh God, Thomas Lennon. He has the best, or is it Thomas Lennon or, yeah, he has the best story about being a Knight of Cups. Yes, that is a great <laughs> thing and everyone should look it up. Yeah, I'm, I, I am curious. Uh, I, I, I don't know if this will make great podcasts, but I'm, I'm curious. Uh, are, what, what, is the, what are the major differences between the extended and, or I should say the director's cut and this one? So... I ha- the uh, there's just a lot more stuff. And <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. It's a Terrence Malick film. Like I would ha- I would it's definitely longer. I know that there are like scenes that like involve more of, you know, his time with the naturals and and things like that, but it's not like it's not like one of those movies where you're like whatever happened to that guy? And then you're like, <laughs> "Oh, well there's a deleted scene where it turns out that like he was thrown off of a motorcycle." You know? <laughs> Like it's it's the strangest thing, and I'm super excited, in all honesty, for the um, the extended cut of what's I'm gonna call it um, Tree of Life. Yeah, that is gonna few, be a few weeks. That is gonna be so weird because I just can't like what is the extra stuff like, and where is it gonna <laughs> slot in? You know, like like everyone knows about like the cut scene from like Terminator two where like they remove a chip from his brain and that's when yeah. he's able to like, start learning stuff. And I can even tell you some deleted scenes from enemy at the gates, like that explain why a thing that seems like it's going to be really important never happens or comes to pass. But like, I really, I really could, I even went online and tried to look up to see like if there was a place that named all the differences and I'm sure that it must exist, but I could not find it. <laughs> I, I hope the Tree of Life extended version is just like Voyage of Time, just pasted on the list. It's in the middle of the movie. <laughs> the creation of uh, the universe scene now runs to a full four hours and 76 minutes. Oh, that'd be great. That would be fantastic. But yeah, this this movie, I think it allows, you know, the lyricism and everything. And, you know, just again, I I just love pointing out like, he was never he was never really married to his screenplace. Um I think that this movie showed off more improvisation maybe than than sure. he was used to. And I, I feel like that comes through a lot. You know, you brought up it also just bucks so many trends. Like you'd expect the battle between the natives and and the uh the the new the, the English to to be like some <laughs> crazy what's the word braveheart type thing instead it's like it's really flinching and halting and like nervous 
Yeah. It's like truly a bunch of people who like don't even really know how to fight each other mm-hmm. and definitely are afraid of what the other person will do to them. And like you said, there's a point of truce where everyone's just like, okay, what what are we doing? <laughs> Maybe we should just stop. And then one guy is just like, no, I can't. I, like, I'm just going to shoot. And then everyone <laughs> freaks out again. And then it's like, okay, we're back. We're doing it. And it's it's also one of the few moments where like you pick up on perhaps like a little bit of the religious mania mm-hmm. that drove like the dehumanization of the native population because is that to become like savages? Yeah. Who's the guy? Who's the guy who flips out? He's 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 slightly famous now, isn't he? <laughs> he looks familiar. Isn't he from Sherlock Holmes? He's the guy, he's the, the police lieutenant that they don't respect. He would definitely fit in in a Guy Ritchie movie. <laughs> so, I th- I'm probably. Sure he's Eddie Marson, right? Oh, I don't know. I did notice Jonathan Price is the king at the end. He is, uh, which is really weird. Uh, and that's his is... wife as the as the queen, potentially. Oh, it is. I think it is him. Eddie Marson plays Eddie in The New World, a character so significant that they gave him the first name of the actor playing. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's like literally has like spit coming out of his like every word is just a. Yeah, yeah he's just like a bark. He, he just starts screaming like weirdly biblical stuff like, you know, <laughs> yeah. seas of fire, like rivers of sulfur, like demons from the mouths of hell. But it's weird because even though he's screaming that like no one's really backing him up. Everyone's just like, yeah. okay, okay, Eddie. <laughs> All right, Eddie, calm down. He's like trying to get everyone to shoot them, and they're like, no, 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 no. We don't want to keep fighting like this. I, I think it's equally great to the scene with the cannibalism where they reveal that some random person just ate. Uh, they ate uh, his fingers or hands. Like yeah, ate his fingers or hands. And then someone ate his hands. Yeah, like no one, like like it's not like oh we need to find out in the camp who did this, but they're like, can, can we just like you know a, just like, get yeah, get them out of here? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's almost like Deadwood in the way that it shows like mm-hmm. what it takes to build a civilization and what it what it appears to take is the British coming back, guns blazing, like bringing women and other things that are like, hey guys, remember life? That thing that we're all trying to do? So what you're saying is Al should have came with a whorehouse and he would have made a killing. Oh, totally, yeah. If Al Swearingen was there, it would have been a much different movie. Um, But no, it really is. It's like, you know, one of the reasons I think that this movie, you know, posits that, like, things go so bad in Jamestown at first is just that it's like a bunch of men who are just there to to take what they can and like live you know not even live to survive and like they're not good at that they don't have like any reason for it and they've come into this wonderland where like one guy says like the fish are flapping against our legs there's oysters as big as stones like Mm -hmm. this is great we're gonna live like kings here but like they just can't ratchet down and like make lives for themselves because they're still greedy and possessive and they don't have like the bonds of family or like a bond to the land like the natives do it's a very yeah watching the scenes in jamestown this movie is hard (laughs) everything is mud and dirt and it's all terrible and there's little kids running around saying they were licking the dead (laughs) i kind of love this one this one sequence late in the film where uh i think it's when uh christian bale and Plummer return 
or I shouldn't say bail, uh, plumber returns with a new ship and, uh, it, it cuts between, uh, Rebecca watching the ship come mm-hmm. and then, then just this image of the camp just totally empty, but it's just a total swamp. It's just, it just <laughs> looks disgusting, but it's like, it's a great, it's a, it's a great image and something that is powerful and elemental and says something about history and, and says something, you know, in the same way that we're talking about it, just showing things mm-hmm. like there is, this movie doesn't flinch again from what you're saying. Like I, and I do think that Malik is absolutely putting deep care into understanding not only how these characters interact, but how this society would just be kind of a jumble. Like I think of that interesting scene where, uh, again, Rebecca actually is mourning, um, uh, Colin Farrell's character, or I'm sorry, Captain Smith, uh, leaving, um, and she's like writhing on the ground and there's two people who are like very explicitly in like rich people's clothes. Like it's obviously like, yeah. like a, a bourgeois and they, they stand out like nobody else in the village. Jonestown, but it's Jonestown at a certain point gets gentrified. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but that's like a fascinating detail. That's like, unacknowledged and is like throughout this film and it goes beyond simple like history lessons Mm -hmm. because as you're saying it's like tactile and and primitive and present like (laughs) you you know like it's not like you're going to the local museum uh, oh shoot i can't remember what you call these of you know where they're what's a reenactment of an old town or something and everybody's oh, like churning butter and, yeah. and is smiling and stuff. <laughs> that's, well, that's not what, I, what that's this is. Like what I'm saying, like these people appear to have like lives, like they appear to be mm-hmm. doing things. And again, you know, that whole, like it, 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 the more I talk about it, the more like this whole thing seems to be saying that like the greatest and most constructive organizing principle of like human civilization is like love. You know, the reason that the natives have, like, a strong society is because, like, they love one another and Mm -hmm. they have familial bonds. And the reason that John Smith is able to find, like, a a modicum of peace is because he has love. But, like, all of these people at Jamestown, they got nothing. Their (laughs) their point is to pan for gold. And they will do that to the point that they starve themselves because, like, there's nothing else for them there. Like, they're there purely to, like, serve their greed. But the second that, like, a new batch of people shows up and, like, John Rolfe shows up, who is able to love her as well, like, he is able to do something else. And, like, it's a very strange thing to have that be the statement, especially when we know where it goes. But, like, yeah, yeah I mean, like, if you think about it, like, anyone who came here you know, no matter what greed was in their heart, like, if they brought their family and if they, like, tried to raise a family and they still tried to, like, get more money, then they were probably doing it on some level out of, like, a desire to provide for the people around them. Sure. And, you know, then- her, and, his, and her love for him allows, like, her people to be kind of, like, subsumed and destroyed. And her father's love for her allows the, the, the settlers to 
buy her for the cost of a copper kettle. <laughs> which is another great moment. With another actor yeah. who I feel like I should know. Is that... I can't remember his name, and it's going to bug me now. Um, Wh- he, which character are you referring to? He, I don't know. He's like a he's a real nice guy. He's the one with the beard who comes up and like says, you know, Chief Potawomac, like you know the the king of the naked devils up in that region. And by the by, an acquaintance of mine just drops that in, like, oh yeah, that guy who who who's like the chief over there. Yeah, I, I know him. We're, we're cool. Like we're, we're good. Um, and then he says, like, you know, he he says that, like, you know, the, the princess is up there, and um, he's willing to trade her for a copper kettle. And then he's like, you know, like me mother used to use to make stew. And then, and then he just like twists the knife even more. He's like, what means he makes to make of the appliance? I cannot say. <laughs> it's it's a very strange scene, um, and I love it. I love every moment of it. It's. Yeah, him just him just coming out and saying like, so by the way, three things. One, I've made a casual acquaintanceship with the chief of another tribe. Two, he's got the princess he's willing to sell her. Three, I don't know what the hell he wants his kettle for, but like, that's what he wants. And it's just like, yeah, I don't even remember. I got so wrapped up in just like the beauty of that scene and everything that man says that I forget the point I was trying to make. Oh, right. <laughs> And the whole point is like, if we have the princess within our walls, her father will not attack us. Sure. Because even though even though apparently he has a hundred children, she's his favorite and a dozen wives. Yeah. <laughs> hey man, if you can handle that, why not? But yeah, it's just it's it was yeah it it's it's it is it's it's like uh, it's a non it's a very subtle, very insightful way of saying that like love is the thing that drives civilization. You know, much as you may not want to agree with it, much as you may not believe it, like a lot of things happen in this world because someone loves someone else. Sure. And I think that, you know, looking at that as an organizing principle for every Terrence Malick film to follow, you know, uh, The Thin Red Line was all about like war being a force of nature that is also at once like, like struggle is not alien to nature but like war is and like it's an unnatural act that we perpetrate that also destroys nature as well as ourselves but this is the movie that's like you know what's really important is love <laughs> love, yeah. love makes the world go round and then tree of life is like yeah love love can really haunt you and screw you up and cause you to make weird decisions and and every other movie has been like yeah love will take you from paris to oklahoma and that might not work out for you and then it's like you know love may be the reason that you feel super fucking empty inside because you can't make a real connection with anyone and then the final movie is like maybe love is more important than your goddamn music ryan gosling (laughs) so i mean that might be a good place to ask you I, i know you have watched a lot, all of these films, a lot. But I'm curious whether rewatching this, whether you you do see something you miss in this film that you aren't seeing in those uh, contemporary films, or alternately, is there something you think that he gained after this film that was missing when you rewatched uh, this one this time? I I honestly think I used to say that like he really found like his heart in the tree of life and obviously the latter three films. But yeah, I think especially on this rewatch and talking about it with you, it really feels like this is the movie that like, that kind of like knocked him out of just philosophizing. Like 
he became a lot less clinical and philosophical about people and life, like in this film. And do you I think, think that's really fair, though? I, I don't know. I wouldn't call Days of Heaven clinical. I think or not, philosophical. not so much in like his thought process, but in his filmmaking. Like I feel like okay. he's allowing it to come out. He's like less afraid of it. It's and more th- intuitive for sure. Yeah. And I think that part of that may just be because <laughs> he's like, well, it's John Smith and Pocahontas. Like everyone knows it's a love story. I don't have to like hide it. I don't have to make it something hmm. else. Like I don't have to make it about these two people lying to this other person in order to try to like steal his land because he's sick, you know? Sure. Like I can just have it be like, yes, these two fell in love. And then in 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 the Tree of Life, he can have it be like, you know, these two brothers love each other and they love their mother and they might hate their father, but you know, that's a kind of love too, I guess. <laughs> and then, you know, they don't have to go through the other three films, but yeah, he's a lot more comfortable with just like letting human relationships exist as they are and not like putting anything else around them. You know, like even Badlands, he was like sure investigating the, I think it was Charles Starkweather murders. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was still like the idea of love there, but it wasn't it wasn't as like deeply felt and powerful, I feel, as it is here. So I think that like I I still I still prop God damn it, I don't know. I still just because the third line was my first, I feel that. But it's weird because the part of the thin red line that I loved the most was I think it was Ben Chaplin's character who has the wife who leaves him. Mm-hmm. And it's like this poor, this poor fucking guy is like going through all this horror, and every time that like something bad happens, you see like the flash to him and his wife, yeah. And like that's what's keeping him alive and getting him through the war. And then he gets a dear John letter, and he like breaks down. And that always deeply affected me. But it really, it's like the one person in this entire movie who's not like struggling with something that is quote unquote like more high level than that, you know, hmm. like. Like, Sean Penn's character is like, the whole thing is about property. Like, this is pointless, this is dumb. And Jim Caviezel's like, there's a better world out there and we can find it. And sure. to that, Sean Penn says, you know, you're fucking wrong. And then you have um, Dash Mihawk, I think, who's just, like, trying to be really, like, posturing and everything, but he's super scared, but then he kills a guy and he, like, gets a rush from it and it's just, like, mm-hmm. about him discovering, like, his ability to do this and like wrestling with the morality of it but like yeah the thing that struck with me most was the person who is like deeply romantic and so i think yeah it feels like terrence malick has like been trying to evolve into the type of person who can say like maybe i'm more douglas sirk than i thought (laughs) no this uh, sirk was definitely something i thought of through a decent amount of this movie yeah all right good i'm glad that i wasn't alone in that. no 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 i i yeah i think that's I think that's totally fair. And I, I think he's always been romantic. And yeah, again, I, I now want to revisit those later films. But I think there's just something... Again, I, I think personally, I find the juxtaposition and the the fascinating you know, non-treatment of the historical qualities in this film as a backdrop seemingly a lot more interesting than... Um, you know, it's song to song or uh, Night of Cups. Like, just uh, there's something about that backdrop that feels 
a lot less rich to me on a on a moment to moment basis. I, I, I'm not sure why that is, and I guess I probably have to investigate it further. Familiarity, you know, like sometimes you need to see something in an unfamiliar sure. environment to really like feel it. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things. I, I don't think, yeah, before before to the wonder and technically tree of life terence malick had never done anything like in the present um tree of life has the sean penn interludes but sean penn himself will be happy to tell you how much of that was cut out <laughs> and <laughs> and i wonder oh, if any boy. of that will be restored uh when the criterion comes out but like it's it's this whole thing where it's like you know in this you're getting to see like I don't know. This this is one of the most singular presentations of like East Coast Native American life that I've ever seen. And um hmm. I did some research today. It was apparently like getting it right was super important to them. And so like I, one of the things I read was talking about how like the haircuts were really important. Um mm-hmm. apparently the Powhatan like, you know, shaved off one half of their head cuz that was where their bows where they they like pulled the bow. Oh, okay. Um and um one of the extras actually said that, like, you know, he's not Powhatan, and he he was saying, like, in my particular culture, you don't cut your hair or, like, shave your hair or anything unless, like, someone who's very close to you died. Like, that's an important part of it. And so he said he, like, struggled with it spiritually, and then he was like, but I realized that, like, this movie that we were doing, we were trying so hard to be so, like, real, and it seemed so important to get everything so right, and he was like, I was sort of honoring all of their ancestors. And so Hmm. then he was like, all right, I guess I can do this. And so it's just, it's really interesting. Like the way that they act and speak and move and just like how, how comfortable they feel in nature. Again, they're not like, they're not the ramrod straight rigid representations that we see in like Disney movies and other things. Like sure. They're, they've got, interior lives and you know i saw i was watching one of them as he was uh climbing like a scaffolding that these people were constructing and he had a little paunch on him like and i was just like i don't know the last time i saw an indian who or a native american in a movie that wasn't like ripped (laughs) and it's like yeah it's the spring if things are going good I guess you'd have a little more fat on you and that's going to help in the winter. Like, I just, like, have to assume that, like, they're not walking around with, like, calipers being like, well, I can't see your six-pack anymore. And, um... So we're going to have to put you on a diet. And I was just watching them, like, but, you know, even though that's the case, he's still very ably climbing this scaffold, which is, like, a whole... It's a whole thing. It's It's little details like that that make everything in this movie a lot easier to slip into even though the narrative is so weird you know in its malachy ways with its voiceovers and its cutaways to nature and you know james horner apparently was driven halfway to madness by the scoring of this movie because like terrence malick just refused to give him a decent assembly cut <laughs> that doesn't remotely surprise me <laughs> no i i i uh. interviewed um Hannon Townsend, who helped to score um, a couple of Terrence Malick films. And I think there was a point where Terrence Malick finally said, you know what I really love is classical music. And 
Horner even was like, he was coming in with Wagner and Mozart, and it just didn't fit. It didn't make any sense. I hate it. And Hannon Townsend was telling me, he's like, yeah, your, your job is really to like listen to the tracks that Terry's picked out. <laughs> and then... And then you just have to make the, the connective tissue between them that can play in the interstitial scenes. And I was like, yeah, that makes, that makes a shit ton of sense. And I think the funniest part of that interview is that he was apparently like in, in the university like learning about composition and stuff. And this, this is a, an interview that you can find on thefilmstage.com. It's, it's vocal, too, so if you like listening to me talk, you'll love it. Um, and... <laughs> He was like, yeah, we got, like, an email that was like, you know, Hollywood director needs, you know, looking for someone to help, like, with the score to his movie. And I was the only person who showed up, and it was Terrence Malick. <laughs> and so I just, like, I just imagine Terrence Malick being like, I'm, t- I'm fucking tired of these Hollywood guys who are like, oh, I need an assembly cut. Give me a temp track. I need to know what to do. I'm going to get a college student. <laughs> I remember down, reading this. Yeah, this is a great whatever. interview. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was a great interview. I'm pretty sure that's the interview that started off with him and I talking about beekeeping for 15 minutes before finally... <laughs> I kind of remember that, too. <laughs> it was one of those interviews that happened right after I had my daughter. And so I was just like... I was like, <laughs> it took me a while to like get back into actually being a journalist. So I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I, I was a little late. You know, my wife is making chili and it smells really good and my daughter's running around. He's like, oh my God, you have a daughter. And then somehow we got on beekeeping. And then like after 15 minutes, I was like... So, Terrence Malick, and you also helped to score the uh, the vessel. Let's talk about this for a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, no, but I mean, it's just it's. Yeah, I it, you hear these stories about the way that he makes movies, sure. But the actors have been cut out, and it's just a shock that anything he makes comes out good. I mean, yes, but I, I think that there is something. I I don't know. I think there's something really fascinating. Uh, and I don't know, nice in the way he makes movies. You know, it doesn't, you know, it sounds annoying and it sounds time consuming for some of these actors, but it sounds like, you know, I, I mean, I guess you have to obviously have privilege to be able to be in a Terrence Malick movie and be like, yeah, I just want to be in a Terrence Malick movie. But just the way that his filmmaking process does sound so improvisational and, you know, it does sound, uh, you know, so long-winded and, and, and free-flowing, like it's kind of interesting in a way that kind of uh, works in contrast to a lot of our ideas about like obsessive auteurs, and it's it, that doesn't make it like any less strange, but it's <laughs> you know it, it it's less sounds like a horror show <laughs> than than what we expect from you know. Uh, masterpieces these days or at least that conversation well that's it's it's a good point you brought up horror shows i think of like i think of like david fincher i think of uh stanley kubrick kubrick's the big one yeah take 67 let's hit her with the bat again (laughs) or even like david o russell like just yeah you know like just an absolute dickhead on on that's the thing it's like you know kubrick and fincher will be like you're doing it again we're gonna strip it all away. You're gonna do it again and again until I say we got it right. And sure. then you have like David Russell, who's like, you know, screaming at Lily Tomlin and sure and everything else. But then, by the way, Terrence... fuck David O. Russell. Yeah, David Russell fucking sucks. American <laughs> Hustle was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Y- um, yes. 
That's it. I like three kings, but three kings flirting with disaster. But yeah, but like it's just weird because like it's the opposite when you hear people talk about Terrence Malick because they're sure. like, I just wanted him to give me direction, and <laughs> and he just walked up and said, "This time, do it without saying anything." Nick Offerman, talk about Call of Duty for an hour. <laughs> I fa- yeah, like, like what was, I think it was the, the Tom Lennon inter- like, sure. interview, and he was like, yeah, he just gave me like a card with like the single word on it. And I don't even remember what the words were, but it was something like pottery, or like, you know, jealousy. It's just like, this is just how I want you to be in this scene. And also, I have no script, you and Christian Bale are just going to walk over there, and you talk about whatever you want. And that's how we get one of my favorite lines in any movie ever, which is, I hate the ocean. It's cold and it's filled with sharks. That's <laughs> right. Oh, man. Yeah. But it's so weird, because, yeah, like like I said, it's... it's. I almost feel like his, his weird philosophy of, like, giving himself over to the chaos, like, creates these movies sure. that, for all of their insanity, and, like, the millions of feet of footage that have to be cut down into two hours, they still have, like... A feeling of connection to them like yeah. everything still feels normal because he's not he's not it's not like um hey man i know you really want to get this sunset shot but like we've spent three weeks trying to get it and we're like we'll never be able to shoot like the driving scene now and the guy's like fuck the driving scene the sun is what's important <laughs> and so you don't get that very important scene because they ran out of time and money terrence malick is the opposite he's like well if this sure. doesn't work we're bound to have another one and we can throw some voiceover over it because <laughs> It's not the plot, it's the feeling. And if he has to shoot around to get that feeling, I just... Money gets brought up too much in Hollywood, but I am, you know, Heaven's Gate is a, is a notorious for costing so much more than it was supposed to, sure. and then still not being any good, though it's apparently going through a critical revival that I don't understand. Um, I just, I always wonder, like, does Terry come in on budget? <laughs> like, I just, like, can't, I just don't know. Like... I just can't imagine him being a person having like even weekly or monthly conversations with his accountant. I just, I can't, that's like impossible to imagine. I don't imagine him as having money. I don't, I don't imagine him as having a house. Like he just feels like this guy who's like hitchhiking across the West and every once in a while someone will be like, Hey Terry, like, you know, we found another like European funder who's $5 million. And, um, Ryan Gosling wants some cred, and he's like, "Fantastic! I have a I have a movie about music that will involve very little music." <laughs> and, and he's like, uh, "You got a you got a script?" And he's like, "It's two pages." <laughs> he's, I don't have a script. I have a playlist. It's like, well, that's closer than we usually get. Tear. Let's do this. <laughs> so I feel like this movie actually hits a sweet spot between it, him, it does. like abandoning scripts completely. Um, obviously Tree of Life is a very written movie and I feel like that's where he like hones Mm -hmm. it in and probably like finds the best balance before he goes completely unhinged in a way that I really love in his last three films. Sure. But I feel like this one, you know, is like, we just keep calling it the pivot point, but it's definitely the pivot point. I just (laughs) miss that play, that play of narrative though, that even Tree of Life has. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, that's why I am really looking forward to Radagon and you know maybe Lubeski isn't quite as bad as I said but you know I, I do 
want to see what happens when a, a new DP collaborates with him. I, I can't remember whether Radagund is also Lubeski. I, I don't I think feel so. Like you had like a whole moment when you realized that it was a moment. Like you were like fucking flipping out, and you're like, "It's not Lubeski." The cinematography is by Jorg Vindmer. Oh, this is the guy I think who did Far from the Madding. No, I'm totally wrong. Never mind. <laughs> apparently, was on the camera and electronic department of Tree of Life, Mission Impossible Three, Captain America: Civil War. Oh, Mission Impossible. Th- Three. But he's not the cinematographer. He was just <laughs> okay, a guy okay. who was like helping. <laughs> sure, sure. He he did. A, he's done a lot of TV movies, and he did something called The Invisibles. This is in interesting choice. He's, okay, I think he's like a. I, he must be like a workman over in in Europe who's been used on these movies that take place in Europe. Yeah, and Terrence huh. Malick must have just been like you. I choose you. <laughs> He's another know. college student. <laughs> <laughs> he responded to an email that very well could have been a uh, some, uh, like what is it? The Kenyan prince? Yeah. <laughs> so the Kenyan piece, the prince is real. <laughs> yeah. I I think I asked him that. I was like, isn't that weird when you see something like that and you're like, fuck it, I'll go, and it'll probably be like a twelve year old, but he like. <laughs> But then it's Terrence Malick, and he's like, well, you know, the funny thing is that most people don't know what Terrence Malick looks like, so it took a second to be like, oh, Terrence Malick. <laughs> yeah, no, I just can't imagine that. That's, must be, that must be such a fucking weird thing to have to, like, bring yourself to understand. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm curious, because I love, I, you know, I, I, I love the Tree of Life, or not the Tree, I love the Tree of Life, I do, and that's Emmanuel Lebesky. And I feel like for the movies that Terrence Malick was making, Emmanuel Lebesky was great. And again, for like Children of Men and Gravity, Emmanuel Lebesky is great. I feel like for Birdman and <laughs> and everything else that Emmanuel Lebesky has done, Emmanuel Lebesky is the kind of guy who you're like, yeah, I guess. Like that makes sense if you're trying to make a bad movie out of this material. Uh, you know, but it's hard. It's it's he what he does. He does so well. I don't. I like. He's he's not like he's not like my um, Janusz Kaminski. Yeah, yeah. Like I can't I can't fucking stand Janusz Kaminski, man. I'm just I've lost it. I've you're lost you're it. wrong about Janusz. Bridge of Spies, dude. You are just you're. He works every oh. now and then, but by and large, I fucking can't stand him. Like <laughs> I was so happy oh. when people hated, um, hated. Ready Player One, because I was like, all right, so am I free now to say, like, Janusz Kaminski maybe could stop doing the thing that he's always doing? <laughs> Brian, you're, you're a petty person. I mean, I'm a petty I'm a, person, uh, too, yeah, but... I'm a fucking wonderfully super petty person. I just I want to say I forgot Lubeski did The Cat in the Hat. <laughs> I mean, Janusz Kaminski did... Oh, did he not? Am I wrong about that? Janusz Kaminski did Little Giants... Little shot. Oh, is that the it's football? One with Rick Moranis. He oh, also yeah. did Cool as Ice. Oh man! I mean, like, right. you got to start somewhere, dude. Like, you do. Not. <laughs> you do, I guess. <laughs> but he did it like right after Children of Men. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but you got to make money. You know, you got to make money. I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and defend everything that he's done. 
Itu Tambi- Itu Mama Tambien Ali the Cat in the Hat. <laughs> that is well, you know, I just I don't even know what to say. Um, I feel like one of the cinematographers I would love to see just because I don't know we're wrapping up. I guess sure. I would love to see him work with Matthew Libatique. Ah. Uh, Sure. <laughs> Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan, Mother. I no, I know, no. <laughs> I feel like I feel like you should like Libetique more because I feel like he can do the things that Emmanuel Lubezki does, but without being as obnoxious as Lubezki. Oh, so, wow. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I just watched Requiem for a Dream, and I almost didn't finish it. And then Mother is Mother. I, I'm going to rewatch Mother at some point because. There were other factors of why I didn't like that movie, but yeah. That's a movie that'll find your other factors and rip them out of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's, not like, oh, it's not like you're going to see like Civil War and you're like, ah, there were other factors. You know, was, you know, They shouldn't have affected that movie. Mother's like, show me your factors. <laughs> okay, wow. <laughs> Let me roast them on a spit in front of you and eat them. Um, so oh, any, rip any, them apart. <laughs> so... That's our thoughts on uh, The New World, a fantastic movie that I feel like we've talked a lot about without really talking a lot about. Yeah, yeah. It's just weird, because it's like, you want to talk about the plot, but it's like, well, it's Pocahontas. <laughs> you know, John Smith, he's a dick, he leaves. Rolf shows yeah. up, he's he's better, they have to like work their way through like all the other stuff, and then she goes to England and she dies before she can come home. Yeah, it's a, it's a good movie. It is I, nice I, to be reminded that Christian Bale can play a man with a soul. He's quite good in this. He's super good in this. Yeah, I kind of forgot that he can be subtle and not rely on really heavy ticks. There's so much kindness in his eyes and everything that he's doing. And it's just weird because, like, he's kind of worked himself out of that. Like, I can't remember the last movie where he was asked to be... You know, it was like the New World came out in 2005 same year as batman begins and then after that it was like rescue dawn the prestige well 310 to yuma he's got a lot of a lot of heart in 310 to yuma but then it's the dark knight terminator salvation public enemies the fighter i mean i think he's kind of perfectly cast in the prestige but i would agree that it's not like a soulful performance out of the furnace actually has a fantastic scene between him and zoe saldana Really? Yeah. Hmm. I believe that they are on a bridge. That is a movie that I need to watch again before I keep telling people that I liked it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Cooper joint, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked Out of the Furnace. I did not see Crazy Heart. I, did, I fucking hated Black Mass with every ounce of my soul. And I haven't watched Hostels because I'm nervous. <laughs> that's fair. I'm, yeah. Apparently he's going to be dick. Cheney in a movie. Is? And Ford. Did you say play Dick Cheney? Yep, in a movie called Backseat. You're talking about Christian Bale. I thought you were talking about Scott Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Uh, that doesn't sound right, but I have no reason to disbelieve you. We should probably end this podcast because we're just going to, we're literally going to make this into the B side. uh, Just our our, our own B side. We're turning it into the B side. This is a note to you, Dan Mecca. How dare you invade my feed? I'm going to become the new B-side. 
we should probably promote that right here. Yeah, totally. The B-side. It's a, a new <laughs> podcast from the film stage, Dan Mecca, and a guest go through the lesser-known roles of some of Hollywood's biggest stars. Uh, currently, we have out for the B-side uh, Tom Cruise in uh, in honor of in honor of Mission Impossible Fallout, and because the Meg is coming out, uh, Jason Statham. <laughs> And I believe Jordan Ralph is on that episode. Because everybody and knows we needed a, a big analysis of the one. <laughs> I just feel like, you know, it's an interesting idea because he does so much. Like, how on earth did they watch all of the States movies? And what, and what can you get out of it? I really, I, mean, I, need, I need to listen to that episode because I need to know what they thought of the mechanic. <laughs> The Mechanic, a movie that I love because, as we all know, I am a foster child. He's he's in some interesting things. Jason Statham or Ben Foster? No, J- Jason Statham. Like I, That's you know, and like uh, like the bank job's pretty interesting. That's one you don't hear people talk about quite as much. And so many of his movies have just like a single oh, word title. Homefront with James Franco as a as a meth boss. That one's actually pretty damn fun. Um, oh my god, yes, I remember this. It's the one where Jason Statham, weirdly, has an American flag superimposed on him on the cover. Even yeah. though he is the most cockney man on Earth. <laughs> he, like, hardly even hides it, too. A spy, I, I kind of think Spy is, like, literally the best compilation of understanding Jason Statham throughout his entire career. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, he's got some, he's got some interesting... Well, yeah, no, he's, stuff. He's, got a, he's got a bunch of good stuff. And we will talk about it all when we <laughs> review the Meg this coming week. Oh, we're not doing Black... Isn't it Black Klansman this week? Oh, is that out finally wide? Yeah. N- uh, yeah. Damn. That's a, that's a toss-up. I mean, really I know we do. about the Meg. <laughs> I mean, I think Bill does, too, because, I mean, we, we all know... <laughs> the shark movie. Is there a peg? <laughs> is there a peg to hang them both on? I mean, it's a shark movie and a Spike Lee movie. Like, I mean, we could also so, try to do both yes. as two <laughs> two separate episodes. You don't uh, think we should review them concurrently? Maybe. <laughs> How does the Meg handle systemic racism versus Black Klansmen? Well, I think interestingly Likewise, enough, how does Black Klansmen deal with the threat of giant sharks? One weird thing, which I think we're going to see more of, which is not bad and not related to racism so i don't know where i'm going with this yeah, is that segue. it uh the meg takes place in china which is which is pretty interesting which is well, very inter- <laughs> surprising to see all of these american stars but then it seems like all of the extras are going to be chinese is this one of those things where people are going to get upset because it feels like we're trivializing asian lives like we did with colossal i don't i don't think it's necessarily upset i just think it's an interesting choice that probably has something to do with the people who funded this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to read the book and see if it's true to the source material. Oh my God. The book. Yes. Anyway, uh, we've gotten way off topic. We're obviously no longer talking about the new world. <laughs> no, so go gang, go read. And, and I, when I say gang, I apparently mean everyone who listens, go read the Wikipedia uh, for description Meg. for the Meg and it's like six different sequels. Yeah, you'll probably be spoiled on the Meg, but 
your life will be enriched. The really does not appear as though it's being faithful. I think they were like, giant shark, awesome. Sure. And Jason Statham's on board? Give me money. Plus, there are like seven sequels to the Meg, the book. So even if you're spoiled on the first one, you have a bunch more to go to. So anyway, that's all for today. Uh, Remember to go to patreon.com slash filmstageshow and give us your money. In addition... Uh, Mubi is sponsoring us so go to mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30 day trial don't miss out on Francois Ozon who is one of the more interesting provocative directors working (laughs) Um, again uh, we also have Meteors which is a a 2017 film Um, this is part of their showcase of things from the Locarno Film Festival, along with The Giant. So, check those out. All you gotta do is go to mubi.com slash film, st- slash film stage. <laughs> I wish we could just, like, decide on what comes oh, after the boy. slash. The Patreon is the full thing. Twitter is only the thing without the definite article. But movie is mubi.com slash film stage for your free 30-day trial. All right. So that's that. Thank you for listening to this classic review. Michael Snydell, why don't you tell the fine people at home where you can be found between now and the next time? Sure. Uh, before the next time where we will decide what we're doing, um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell, where I am joining the Born Again Lubeski fan club. And uh, I'm letterboxed uh, under my name. You can find me on Twitter at Brian J. Rowan. Same with Letterboxd and Instagram and all those other things. Personsidedearfilm.net and of course all of my other stuff can be found as well as more episodes of the Film Stage Show and the B-Side at thefilmstage.com. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next time. <laughs>